All right, we want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel tonight. We're continuing our look at uh, the greatness of God. This is uh, part two. Don't know how long we're going to continue this, but I don't know about you. I really enjoyed uh, last week and enjoyed kind of looking at some of these scripture passages about the greatness of God. And tonight we're going to dig into some of the attributes of God. hope to get through a couple of them. That might be a little optimistic, but at least we'll get through one tonight. That's my my goal. A couple of uh, events this week was on Brandon House again last night. Encourage you to check that out. These are short 15-minute or so segments. And if you're not familiar with the FTX cryptocurrency collapse, uh, encourage you to watch that. Uh, uh, we have both the video and the podcast posted at Not By Works. Uh, just kind of a perfect illustration, I think, of the tentacles of the Luciferian uh, elite and how they it's never about what it's about, you know, to whatever extent the mainstream media is covering this. It's just they're covering it as a major financial scandal, but it's about much, much more than that, as you uh, will see. So I uh, always encourage you to check out our podcast. We do several a week. Our Plum Creek Chapel services are converted into podcasts, the messages anyway. So that's a three a week, but then we do several others in different venues. Uh, looking forward to Friday this week. I'll be with Randy again doing a podcast and uh, he's always fun to talk to because he he's got some sources that are pretty well connected and so he kind of learns things uh, before their public knowledge and it's it's fascinating so I'll be posting that uh, Friday shortly after we record that um, encourage you to check out both books Spirit of the Antichrist volumes one and two we've got both of them out there in the lobby if you don't already have one feel free to to pick that up okay with that um, Let's dive into the greatness of God. So we talked last week, we looked at many passages that use uh, that uh, Hebrew phrase or adjective gadol, meaning great, large, remarkable, out of the ordinary in degree or magnitude. And uh, we, we started out in Genesis 1.1, you know, that, that God begins his self-revelation to mankind by just saying, in the beginning, God. That's uh, three words in Hebrew, four words in our English uh, Bibles, in the beginning, God, and and then the rest of the Bible is really God telling them, telling us about Himself. And so uh, we're going to return where we left off last week to Genesis 36, 26, one of the many passages that remind us God is great. And uh, this verse is also a good uh, proof text for the first attribute of God that we're going to look at tonight. So what are the attributes of God? It's, it's one of those phrases that's kind of, hard to, to come up with a title for the category. Uh, a lot of times people will say they're characteristics of God, but you know God is in a class by himself, as we're going to see tonight. And as we looked at a little bit to last week, there's none like you. Uh, so it's not like we can, we can describe God using external characteristics. The attributes of God are, sep are essentially in inseparable from the person of God. They are who He is. They are what makes Him God. Sometimes you'll hear these called the perfections of God as a kind of a unique term to describe God. That's the way Charles Ryrie, the great theologian, uh, described them. But most of the time in writings, you'll see them just referred to as the attributes of God. And uh, the attributes of God essentially are those distinguishing characteristics, again, for lack of a better word, of God's divine nature that are the essence of God. 
So we introduced this study by talking about the greatness of God. Now we're going to see some of the reasons that God is so great. Uh, the, the overall overarching description is, you know, God is great. Okay, how? That's essentially what we're going to be looking at. And so tonight I want to focus on the first of several of God's attributes, and that is that God is eternal. God is eternal. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that God is without beginning and without termination. He is free from the succession of time. Now, already my head's kind of starting to explode because we're so conditioned to think in terms of linear time, time, space, and matter, that to describe God without using those terms is very, very uh, difficult. But when we say God is eternal, what we're saying is there never was a time when God did not exist, and there never will be a time when God will not exist. And so, again, going back to Job, the rest of that verse says, Behold, God is great, and we do not know Him, nor can the number of His years be discovered, Job said. Moses, in that great uh, that, that was Eli, Eli who's speaking, as we talked about last week, one of Job's friends, um, but it comes from the book of Job. Moses wrote Psalm 90, and a fantastic psalm. We looked at that some uh, year or more ago when we went through some selected psalms. But Moses writes, Lord, you, and remember, Lord, all caps, is a reference to what? Anybody remember from last week? When you see Lord in all caps, Yahweh, Yahweh the personal name of God, the I Am which is going to be significant as we talk about uh, the eternality of God. But he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I mean, again, we're trying to describe, and God's Word is describing Himself in human language. So we call this anthropomorphism. But whenever you say from to, that's a linear terminology. And so Moses here is trying to say from everlasting, which is, you know, without beginning, to everlasting, without end, you are God. One of the compound names for God we get from Genesis 21. The context here is after the birth of Isaac, remember the son of promise, uh, Hagar and Ishmael, when, when, when uh, Abraham had taken matters into his own hands, Ishmael is born, and they depart, they leave, and God promises in Genesis 21 that Ishmael would also produce a great nation, like Isaac, and Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech in Genesis 21, and uh, he he he. It's in Beersheba. He plants a tree there in Beersheba, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And when he makes this covenant, as is often the case in the Hebrew culture, they would describe God with a compound name. In this case, El Olam, El God Olam, everlasting. So in English, we read that he called on the name of the Lord the everlasting God, the everlasting God. So God is eternal, and and the reason I started with this this attribute is because it helps us 
to really understand so much that we can't understand. And it gives us a peace to just sort of rest there. Now, we talked at length about this many months ago in the height of our study of Calvinism when we were trying to describe how Calvinists are determined to reconcile sovereignty and free will, and which I don't believe you can do. And so we believe the Bible says you have to be comfortable accepting both truths. It's called a biblical antinomy, something that the Bible teaches that is anti-namas or against logic. And so uh, divine timelessness kind of is a theological way of describing this tension between our finite minds and God's infinite attribute. So we call this divine uh, timelessness, also known as the atemporal nature of God, ah meaning no temporal time. Um, and, you know, the Bible teaches the divine timelessness of the Creator. In fact, it's really a standard of orthodoxy, although in recent years, in the last, say, 50 years, uh, it's been challenged by some Johnny-come-lately approaches to theology that are trying to minimize uh, or downplay the timelessness of God. And, and what they're doing, in my opinion, is creating God in the image of man. So you've got uh, groups like uh, Process Theology, uh, which essentially is nothing more than uh, an attempt to uh, say that God uh, is affected by time and affected by circumstances beyond his control. Or you've got uh, Open Theism or Open Theology, I've uh, written about this pretty extensively, uh, which is a, another, uh, you know, really blatant attack on the biblical view of God, which says that, you know, God's not all-knowing, that he can only know what's knowable, and if things haven't happened yet, how can anyone know them? Well, God can, because God's not like us. He's, he's outside of time, space, and matter. So, the divine timelessness of God is a very foundational understanding of who God is, and so I want to spend some time on that. Uh, tonight. As I said, the motivation for the attacks on this doctrine are in effort to reconcile God's personal interaction with mankind with His sovereignty, kind of reconciling those two things. And you can see how this comes up in just about every aspect of our walk with the Lord, right? Uh, for example, how many of you believe prayer changes things? Amen. Everybody should have their hand up because that's what the Bible teaches. How many of you believe God is sovereign and in full sovereign control of everything? Yeah, everybody should have their hand up. From our perspective, doesn't that make you a little uneasy? Doesn't it seem like those things are somewhat contradictory, right? Um, and so, you know, Romans 11, I think, is the key passage here for, for understanding this tension. And here Paul is stating this at the end of a three-chapter section in Romans in which he's defending God's choice of Israel as his chosen nation. And, and, and people, you know, might object, and Paul takes on the voice of a hypothetical objector in this section, but Paul says, you know, who are we as the clay to cry out against the potter, right? God is God. He can do whatever He wants. And this is kind of his climax to that section. There's a whole lot of other things in chapters 9 through 11, a lot of great theology, a lot of great eschatology, a lot of great soteriology, but uh, at its core, Paul is essentially saying it's okay that we don't 
that this doesn't make sense to us. And listen to the way he says it. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And he's quoting here from Isaiah and also from Job, great wisdom book of Job that we've already looked at, when he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. I probably should have highlighted that last phrase, which really alludes to God's eternality. Of him, through him, to him. In other words, it all begins with God. It all begins with God. So we are on good biblical ground being uh, comfortable in our uncomfortableness about God's sovereignty. Um, But the atemporal nature of God basically allows for a created universe in which mankind is personally responsible for his own choices, even though God has determined all things in eternity past. So, as you're going to see in a moment, by holding fast to the doctrine of divine timelessness, that God is outside of time, and you've heard me talk about this a lot if you've been at Plum Creek for very long or followed not by works, um, God is outside of time, space, and matter. And so therefore, we sort of take on faith everything he says in his word, as we always should. And when it doesn't make sense to us, like it doesn't make sense to us that God could elect people, and yet everyone on earth has free will to either believe the gospel or reject it. I mean, that that seems inconsistent, right? And that's what bothers Calvinists, right? So they say that you don't have a choice, that you, you know... If you're one of the lucky ones, you're in. If you're not, too bad. But God has to force you to believe. You don't get to choose to believe. God has to give you the ability to believe. And if He doesn't give you the ability to believe, you're not going to believe. And if you're not one of the elect, He's not going to get you the ability to believe. And you couldn't believe even if you wanted to, if you're not elect, right? So, uh, but when you understand this doctrine, which is admittedly uh, a, a little bit complex, it sort of allows you to go, oh, okay. I'm gonna, the Bible teaches both. I'm going to accept both. Um, so the atemporal view of God sort of allows for a scenario in which within time there's cause and effect, um, you, you are responsible for your actions, whereas outside of time, God is in charge of it all, right? And we see, even within time, we see examples of this uh, in Old Testament history, because how many times do we see God holding Israel's enemies accountable for their sinful pagan actions, and yet at the same time using them to bring discipline upon God's holy people. So God in His sovereignty says, okay, I'm going to allow the Assyrians to attack Israel. And then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to punish the Assyrians for attacking Israel, right? And we're going, wait, that doesn't seem fair. But, see, fairness is a human construct. Uh, you know, that's why we have to be careful with the language we use when we, when we describe God. We're going to get to one of those, uh, to, to the idea of fairness and justice um, in God's attributes. But sometimes you'll hear people saying, you know, God could not do this or would not do such and such because it's inconsistent with justice or it's not compatible with justice. That's a false statement. 
And you don't realize it when you say it, but that's making God accountable to an external standard. The reality is, according to God's Word, everything God does is just. The definition of justice is what God does. That's justice. Justice isn't an external standard to which God must hold Himself accountable. God is just. And if God chose to send every human being to hell because we rebelled against Him and didn't heed His warning and ate the apple, that's just, right? This is why we have to understand God's justice, grace, and mercy and how they all kind of coalesce together. Um, the Yeah? So how, how did the Jewish people deal with this idea of the, time, the timelessness of God? The, how did the Jewish people deal with the timelessness of God? Well, we're going to look at many of the passages from the Old Testament, and we already have, in which they, like Moses, under, clearly understood as the Spirit of God in inspired him to write that God is eternal. Abraham called God the eternal, everlasting God. So they understood it as far as how they, you know, whether they wrestled with this tension. I think we see that, you know, frequently in the Psalms in places when they're questioning God, saying, why God, why now, or when God so it's like they understood it theologically, but like us, they still struggled sometimes with, you know, God, why aren't you intervening? Or why did you allow this to happen? I mean, in a perfect world, if we had perfect spiritual maturity, every time something happened, we would just kind of go, okay, God knows best. <laughs> We're not like that, though, right? We, we, are, we live in a realm of the flesh and of, time and of space and a matter so when tragedies happen our hearts cry out and we we don't understand it but the the resting place for that struggle even though it may take time has always got to be but god right mm -hmm. uh, yeah so jb when it says like god hardened pharaoh's heart is that like another example of this So the question is, when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, is that another example of a paradox? Uh, yes and no. The in the case of Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart like seven times before God hardened it. So, you know, we we see both free will and God's sovereignty in that interaction. So people focus on God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and they forget to read the the previous few paragraphs where time and again Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So. Um, but, you know, this is one of those deals where God is sovereign. Man is free. You know, and, and I, I don't claim to reconcile those two. I just claim to accept those two. Uh, but the past, hold that thought for just a second. The passage that came to my mind a second ago was uh, Psalm 13. Back to Ken's question. You know, here David is, is questioning God like we often do. How long? Oh, Lord, will you forget me forever? Felt like God had forgotten him. How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? I mean, sorrow is born out of a lack of faith. It's born out of our unmet expectations. When we expect good things to happen and tragic things happen because we live in a fallen world under the curse of sin, we begin to grieve. David says, Having sorrow in my heart daily, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. And then in verse 5, but I have trusted in your mercy. So, I mean, that's one of many excellent illustrations of the people of God in the Old Testament, both acknowledging God as the ultimate one who's in charge and yet struggling in day-to-day life that this doesn't make sense. So, uh, so I do think they, they struggled, as all human beings do, with the same thing that we do today. So, I mean, so I have to just ask, so why did they have so much trouble with Jesus? I mean, why, you know, if you follow these, this logic, this thought pattern, you know, is it, was it just purely Satan that closed their eyes to the Messiah? So why did they have so much trouble with Jesus. Well, certainly in God's, let's start with from God's perspective, in God's plan of the ages, that was part of the plan, that the Old Testament prophets predicted that they would stumble over the cornerstone, that they would reject him, that they would uh, crucify him. Daniel 9 predicted that. Um, they didn't, he didn't predict a crucifixion, but it predicted uh, that they would kill him. Um, so God's plan all along involved, you know, Christ, the, the eternal Son of God, being both the sacrificial lamb as well as the victorious warrior. And so we, we, this is where, you know, when we speak of Bible prophecy, a lot of times, you know, we speak from a human perspective. And so I've often said, hypothetically, had the Jews received their king in the first century, he would have taken the throne, we would have entered immediately into the kingdom, and we wouldn't have the present church age. That's from man's perspective. But we know, biblically, that wasn't God's plan, because God's word tells us that the church is a mystery that is now being unveiled, and it's part of God's plan for the present age. So, again, there's an example of man's viewpoint, God's viewpoint. So, the, the Jews, uh, ultimately... From their perspective, from a, a worldly perspective, it was deception. It was the same thing that uh, they're going to be uh, in danger of at the second coming. That's why Jesus so often warns the future nation of Israel that will be alive at his second coming to watch out for deception. Because deception is getting worse and worse. But it was already here. Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden. And Satan's been deceiving people ever since. He's a great deceiver. So I think, he, yes, he blinded them to who Jesus was. Um, and, you know, Paul talks about that a little bit in Romans 9, that they, you know, they thought, you know, they had a misconception about God and, and righteousness, and they thought they could be righteous by keeping the law, and instead they needed to trust God. That's how they're made righteous. That's the way Abraham was made righteous, by faith. So... You know, it, it, you just have to always ask yourself what perspective. We can sort of make sense of it from an earthly perspective. Oh, yeah, they, they turned a deaf ear. They were misled by false teachers. They, Satan deceived them, or they were jealous, or they were, you know, what, you, any number of things that kept them from receiving the king. But ultimately, this is all part of God's plan. And Jesus said, not long before he was betrayed in the garden, literally hours, uh, in Matthew 23, that the nation of Israel would not see him again until they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what's going to happen. You know, 
they're going to believe the gospel, they'll call on the name of the Lord, and then they'll receive their kingdom. Yeah? So this is, a, this is a, an extremely difficult concept for me to understand, probably impossible for me to understand. But I've heard it explained because of the timelessness and God being outside of time and space, that when God spoke creation into being, he, all of history immediately took place. All of yeah. his plan immediately. It, it, so we may be reign, we are reigning with Christ right now in God's. That's hard for me, and and that's why I think the Calvinists look at election right. as as part of that. Yeah, well, the problem with Calvinism, as I think I made abundantly clear in that 10-week series, isn't election. The Bible teaches election. I have no problem with that. The problem is that they take election to the extreme, and, and the implications of it in their theology is that you don't have a choice whether to believe the gospel or not. That's where I have a problem. But what about at that moment? Yeah, Christ so... Reigning, he's been crucified. He's reigning. Yeah, that's a great... Uh, I'm going to repeat it for the sake of those who are uh, watching online or watching the video later. Paul's comment is that some people, uh, admittedly this is a difficult subject to comprehend, but some people uh, it helps to think in terms of when God spoke the world into existence, He created it all from start to finish. And the way theologians talk about that is that God exists in the eternal now, right? That God is, that it's, you know, like think about the cross of Christ, right? He paid the sins for all mankind, past, present, and future, right? So Old Testament saints who believed and were saved and are in heaven today, they were saved before the penalty for sin was paid for. Wow, how, do you, how can that possibly be? Well, it can be because of the divine timelessness of God, that He exists in the eternal now. So from God's perspective, the price had already been paid, even though the realization of it occurred linearly over time in history, which is 6,000 years old now. So, But I'm going to actually chart this out for you here in a second. I'm just sort of laying the foundation uh, a little bit. So the biblical view, the atemporal view, or divine timelessness, as we're calling it, uh, is, a, is, a, is what allows us to, to make sense of both man's free choices and the consequences thereof versus God's having determined everything in eternity past. The opposite view, I'll go so far as to say the heretical view, there's no question that process theology and open theism are heretical. Uh, the temporal view of God basically is trying to accomplish the same thing, to, to hold man personally responsible for his actions. The problem is it does so at the expense of the biblical attributes of God that we're going to get to in, in time, such as omniscience, immutability, omnipresence, it basically makes God um, accountable to man. So time is not eternal. This is the bottom line. Time was created by God when he created the universe. Let me prove it with these, uh, with these verses. First of all, we could go to John. When Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <clears throat> I am the eternal Son of God. 
By the way, that's another standard of orthodoxy. Jesus did not become the Son of God in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He's always been the Son of God. Uh, he's the eternal Son of God. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one. We can't necessarily understand that because even with new math these days and common core, you know, three is not equal to one. Uh, we understand that, but yet when God, the creator of the universe, who is outside of time, space, and matter, uh, says, I am, he, he's the eternal I am. Twice Paul speaks about before time began in Titus 1, 2, uh, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. There you go. The time has a beginning. Or 2 Timothy, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Um, so uh, if, we, if we try to chart this out, this is how I would picture in my mind the odd temporality of God. Uh, time is finite by its nature. It is created. It has a definite beginning and a definite ending. That's why we talk about in the eternal state when time shall be no more. Right? You've heard me say that. So, in the eternal state, after the old heavens and old earth are destroyed and recreated in sinless perfection, we will have uh, no more time in that sense. So, uh, so let's think of it this way. Uh, I'm just using this same template that I chose for the presentation tonight because it kind of looks, I don't know, like an unending universe or something. So, we're going to call that darkness out there eternity. Uh, you know, the, the timeless abode of God, let's just say. And then God created time. Uh, he spoke the world into existence. The clock started ticking, and mankind is part of that creation. So, uh, basically, the eternal God exists outside the bubble of the created universe, or mankind exists within the eternality of God as a subset. So time is finite by its nature. It was created. If time were infinite, like God, now think about this. I know this is heady stuff, but just try to track track with me. It's hard for me to even comprehend. But and as Paul said, it's just, these are you know biblical antinomies by their nature. But if time were infinite, like God. That would mean God existed for an infinite number of moments, units of time, before creation. Right? If time were infinite, like God, then God, who is infinite, has existed for an infinite number of moments. And if God existed for an infinite number of moments prior to creation, then creation hasn't occurred yet. We don't exist, right? But time isn't infinite. Time is finite. Time has a definite beginning. Creation, of course, has occurred as God has revealed to us in His Word and as we can see and feel and touch. And it occurred when time began. So time is a function of creation. And that means that space and matter, which you know, were also created within time, are also a function of creation. So God exists outside, as I'm trying to depict here in this uh, diagram outside of time, space, and matter. Uh, God is not only atemporal, 
he is aspatial as well, meaning he's not limited by space. And these are the only views that really can explain the biblical doctrines of God's omnipresence and God's immutability. If God is eternal, then he is unchangeable. God is not in process. That's where the heretical view gets its name from, process theology, is that God is improving. He's going through a process like all created things, and we're either degenerating or evolving or getting better or getting worse, but that's not God. So think about, we're going to get to God's omni. Hold that thought for just one second, Justin. Think about God's omnipresence for a second. If God were constrained by time, then he wouldn't be omnipresent. Yet the Bible says he is omnipresent. So you think about God, and that's the reason you know he's out in eternity, at the timeless abode of God, but he can be anywhere he wants within time, anytime he wants. It's that uh, dimensionalism, you know. So uh, Satan, let's talk about Satan. I talk about him a lot in my recent books and the Luciferian plan. He's not omnipresent. He's constrained by time. Now, he being a spirit, being an angel, like all angels and demons, can go into eternity, but that doesn't make them eternal. We, too, are going to go into eternity someday, into the presence of God, to be absent with the bodies, to be present with God. That doesn't make us eternal. It just means that we're now living with God. But God, by his very nature, can be everywhere at once. So this bubble of creation uh, is within God's eternality. Or to say it another way, the eternal God exists outside of the bubble of the created universe. Um, And this is why it's so difficult to comprehend all that God is, other than his self-revelation to us. I mean, would we have been able to uh, understand all of these attributes. I know we've only gotten to one so far, his eternality, but would we have would we have naturally understood by looking at creation that God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent? We might have understood that he's omnipotent because we're thinking, wow, look at this that he made. You know, he made these stars and this heavens and these trees and this ocean. And but I doubt that we would, you know, been able to intuitively understand all that God is apart from his self-revelation to us. And that's why at a moment in time, again, some 2,400 years or so after God had already created the universe, he chose to tell us everything we need to know about him. So the eternal God exists outside the bubble of the created universe. Justin, you had a question or comment. Um, Is that why we get, um, after the rapture, we get new bodies? Because right now, these bodies are Yeah, so that's exactly why Paul says flesh and blood. So the question is about our after the rapture, our eternal bodies. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you know, this body is constrained by time, space, and matter. It's going to go the way of all flesh. It's made up of atoms, right? Um, and uh, if the Lord doesn't come back and we go the way of all flesh, then, you know, this body will deteriorate. It's already deteriorating, right? Um and, uh, and then someday this mortal, as Paul describes beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15, will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. This corruptible will put on incorruption. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're going to be dwelling outside of this sin-stricken earth. Um, 
and and but you know again not to get too i don't know what the word is but weird i guess but the reason i've always been fascinated by the spiritual realm is because you know early on um through studying god's word and having the privilege of studying under great teachers in, in college and seminary uh, two different seminaries i just really you know became clear in my mind this picture of who god is and so we know there's an unseen world so it's not surprising to at all to me that on the dark side in the demonic realm demons can come and go and dimensionally and appear and go through portals and 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 so forth because that world exists it's nothing like our world at all but we the bible tells us all about it it tells us about the battles that are taking place all around us you know we see pictures that not pictures but realities described in the old testament of angelic armies you know defending god's people and then being revealed and you go oh wow who knew that was i mean i think people have no most people have no awareness of what's happening in the unseen realm all around us both angelically and demonically and paul or the writer of hebrews said don't forget to entertain a stranger because that might be an angel and and so sometimes they can manifest as human beings sometimes they're just in the hidden world doing battle and we won't know maybe ever but but possibly if god allows when we get to heaven we might get a glimpse of this how many times god in the supernatural realm, and we talked about this a few weeks ago in, in the book of Acts, uh, seeing the supernatural, remember that? Um, but we won't know, maybe, if, unless God allows us to someday, how many times in our world, in our realm, that we were protected uh, from something. Wendy made a profound comment. She, she has many profound comments. Uh, she's just brilliant, one of the most smartest people I know. But we were taking uh, uh, Abby and Zoe to a school function early on a Saturday, uh, it was around Halloween, it was a hayride type thing, not a Halloween celebration, but like a fall festival, and we came upon a wreck at an intersection out in the country in Elbert with, with a stop sign, it wasn't a four-way stop sign though, and apparently the one car ran the stop sign, and it looked pretty bad, but it had just happened, and cars were pulling over to help, and and then as we went on down the road, we, we passed, you know, police and fire trucks and ambulances coming that way. And Wendy said, you know, if we'd have left five minutes earlier, that might have been us. You know, wow, I don't think about stuff like that. But that's so true. I mean, that's, you know, we just don't know how God is using what we don't know to interact, you know, and, and protect us and, and so forth. So, yeah, did you have a question? Why, the question is, why did God take six days? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. We'll have to ask him. But, I mean, in the Bible, that pattern is certainly very significant, and it becomes a pattern throughout both God's people and just in general. You know, six is the number of man. Seven is the number of perfection. Um, seven we see, you know, repeated frequently. The, the God's 490-year plan is 77s, and the final seven years is you know, to bring things to the return of Christ is critical. So I think it's got significance. Why, what God's motive was for doing this, 
I'd have to really think about that to see if there's a biblical answer to that. There may be, I just don't know of it off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm. That's a great question. I can't say it as eloquently as you. So I'm just going to summarize it for the tape, and then I'll give you my thoughts. But the, basically, the question is: Can God pivot? <laughs> can God look down and say, "I think I'll, I'll speed things up" or whatever? Um, you know, God is immutable. By definition, that means He doesn't change. Um, yet, God answers prayer, and God prayer changes things. And, and that's why the Bible says we should pray, come Lord Jesus. So from man's perspective, the answer to your question is a resounding yes. God can hear the heart cries of his people, especially today when so many people are, uh, as you called it, wishful thinking. I, I don't know if I'd call it wishful thinking. I call it desperately pleading. <laughs> um, because wishful thinking is kind of like something you almost expect isn't going to happen. Kind of like hoping the Broncos will win the Super Bowl, but um, desperately pleading is 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 I think where people are today. I mean, I think about my parents. You know, they're not getting any younger. Uh, or Wendy's mom, who just passed away, she desperately wanted to see the Lord in the rapture and meet Him in the air. I mean, desperately. And when she was dying, one of the last things she said before she breathed her last was, "Is that you, Jesus?" I think I told you all that story. So. Um, I, I, I feel for people like my parents. And, um, and, you know, as I think I said recently, I don't remember if it was here or in a different podcast or something, but, you know, I think about my granddaughter or my children, and I think, man, I, I don't know how they're going to survive. It's just so absolutely out of control. And so we all are crying, come Lord Jesus. And I believe from a human perspective God hears those cries, and yes, he may say, okay, now's the time. But from the timeless abode of God, as Paul described a moment ago, God exists in the eternal now. So not only does God know when it's going to happen, from God's perspective, it's already happened. It's already planned. It's already done. So that's why when we were talking about Calvinism, I really tried to dissuade people from thinking of election in the context of uh, foreknowledge. See, a lot of people say, oh, sure, I believe in the election. God looked ahead, saw what was going to happen, and then made a decision. Well, that is completely unbiblical because God, for God to be able to look ahead, something had to be there. So as I, I said frequently, God didn't just read ahead in the book. He wrote the book. So we cannot define election in terms of foreknowledge. They're two separate things. Yes, God does have foreknowledge, but that's because he wrote the book, right? So uh, the same thing is true here when we talk about God's return. He, he not only uh, has an idea in his mind, I think that was the way you put it, but he knows precisely when it's going to happen in his perspective. But go back to Romans 11. Who has known 
the mind of God or who has become his counselor, right? How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So, does that make sense? I mean, and it, I think we can understand what we're saying, but it's hard in our finiteness to, to accept both. But that's the definition of a biblical antinomy, something contrary to logic. And we accept many other uh, antinomies. We accept, for example, the virgin birth, right? Nobody would deny that unless you're a heretic. Uh, yet we know that virgins don't have children. We accept the Trinity, but we know three can't be one. You know, we accept the miracles, right? So we should also accept that within the realm Let's put our diagram back up. Within the realm of creation, the temporal realm, there's cause and effect. Uh, it's called determinism, right? That this determines that, determines that, determines that. Outside of that, nothing happens that can contravene God's sovereignty. Nothing. So, you know, if you think of a pool table, uh, sometimes, you know, you hit the cue ball, it hits a ball, directly goes into the pocket. But sometimes, depending on the way the balls are aligned on the table, and if you're really good at pool, you can hit the cue ball, which hits a ball, which hits a ball, which hits another ball, and knocks that ball into the, you know. So that's determinism. And there's cause and effect. God holds us personally responsible for our actions. And yet, God in his, you know, eternality knows it all and has planned it all, and God is outside of that causation. So I saw a hand. Yeah. Okay, I got in really big trouble when we were doing the Calvinism piece. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to ask the question, same question, but in this context this time. So, yes, tonight you've made my brain hurt. <laughs> number well. Two, number two, I, before I stepped into this room tonight, I accepted that God knows what he's doing, has a plan, he's outside of time and matter and space. I accepted all that. And so why is it why are we drilling why, down? Yeah, why 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 do we I wasn't struggling with this concept. <laughs> to well, you're welcome. <laughs> no, I think I know where you're going. So you know, you came into the room, I'm summarizing, you know, certainly understanding as a man of the word, the fact that God is above all and he's got a plan and he's working out his plan. And you don't really struggle that often with reconciling God, a man's temporality with God's temporality, right? So really, what's the point? Well, I, I am going to, with each of these attributes, I'm making a point to think about how we apply this and why this is important. In a minute, I'm going to get to God's eternality applied and what the significance of this under, you know, understanding it is. But you're right. I mean, a, 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 a student of the Bible and a mature, or let's say maturing, because we're not none of us are perfect, but we're all hopefully growing in our understanding of the Lord, believer, uh, doesn't wrestle with this very often. But we do wrestle with it. Our world sometimes gets rocked as we just read about David in Psalm 13. And when it does, understanding the eternality of God 
keeps us from becoming shipwrecked in the faith like so many people who shake their fist at God and say, why God? Why did that young child die? Why did that car accident happen? Why did that person get cancer? You know, Why doesn't God wipe out Klaus Schwab and Yuval Noah Harari, right? Why, why, why not now, God? Let's do this right now. It helps us sort of fall, have a place to land when, we, when our heart yearns for that. We can then do just what you said, which is, okay, but God, I know you've got this. And so, um, so again, God, or, or the eternal God, exists outside the bubble of the created universe. So hopefully this kind of helps you at least conceptualize it and my guess is like Ken most of you kind of already sort of understood this but now we can sort of recognize that okay we are within this 6,000 year creation of time so what's the so what about all of this well think about this a God who is confined or limited in any sense by time or space is no God at all right because God is eternal, it means He will never cease to exist, which means that we can be assured of His continual providence and sovereign control over our lives. Let me say that again. Because God is eternal, it means that He'll never cease to exist, which in turn means that we can count on the fact of His continual providence and providence and sovereign control in our lives. So if we compare that or contrast that I should say with Satan who's been vying for control of the created universe ever since he got kicked out of heaven I wonder sometimes if Satan's demons and his human uh, accomplices the Luciferians on earth who all read the Bible and know it they just don't believe it I wonder if sometimes in their mind there's just a hint of doubt and they think well you know the Bible says one day Satan's going to be destroyed and so are all of his followers hmm Am I worried about this? See, we never have to contemplate that. We never have to worry about that. There's absolutely no scenario under which God loses or God fails or God ceases to exist. God is God. He existed long before time, space, and matter. Uh, there you go again using human terms because long before implies a length of time. But He is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. So everything he promises, you can count on. And uh, the next one that we're going to look at uh, probably next week uh, uh, is God's self-existence, which is related to eternality. But God's self-existence, which is built upon eternality, is that God is not dependent on anyone. He is completely and utterly independent. See, everything else in the creative universe depends on God or something God created indirectly. So a child is dependent on his mother. Animals are dependent on their surroundings. Trees are dependent on rain. So on and so every one of us is dependent on in some way. God is dependent upon no one and nothing else. He is completely self-existent. Remember, he existed for eternity before time existed. So, uh, you know, that's, that's why, uh, you know, we say that he's self-existent. But I think that the real... Um, I think meaningfulness of this crucial attribute of God is that um, you know He's trustworthy. He's uh, not limited, and 
we can count on what he's saying. And, and then when things don't make sense here, we never have to wonder, do they make sense to God? They do make sense to God. You know, and Nothing ever throws God for a loop. So yeah, that's why I found myself praying many times through the years, Lord, something to the effect of, Lord, I don't understand this, but I know you do. Yeah. Um, so how does Satan figure into this? He wasn't created at creation, but was before when the angels were created and then put into time? And no, he was created in time. He was? Oh, absolutely. Like angels and everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, everything, all angels are created beings. So angels, animals, everything in the created universe was created by God within six days. So they are created beings. Yeah. There's not really a question in this, but I'd like to hear your comments on this. In Mark 13, Christ is talking about, um, like in the Olivet Discourse, uh, the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, talks about the parable of the fig tree and right. watchful. And then in verse 32, he says, But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, mm -hmm. nor the Son. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's Jesus speaking, as you said in the Olivet Discourse. No one knows the day or the hour. Again, I think that's an anthropomorphism. Uh, it's the same uh, thing we see in other encounters between God and man. So here you have God the Son, and Jesus clearly said, I and my Father are one. He is God, no question. That's what got him killed, is claiming to be the Son of God. Uh, talking to humans and expressing some type of limitation. So he's not really speaking as God, but more as a human form. Correct. I think it's an example of Philippians 2, the hypostatic union, the kenosis where he willingly sets aside. Um, we see the same thing uh, in the garden with God. Remember what happened after the fall? What did God say? Where are you, Adam? Did God not know where Adam was? No. So God in his self-revelation of mankind communicates often in ways that we would understand. So, again, we just have to take it at face value. Jesus is not limited in his knowledge. Um, and yet in, in his uh, earthly incarnation, he still hungered, he still thirsted, he still wept. He experienced things that uh, God in his eternity doesn't, in his eternality doesn't experience, right? Um, and so I just think the incarnation is the supreme event of all mankind ultimately leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. And, you know, we're not expected to understand uh, both statements other than to acknowledge that it represents an antinomy. How can God know all things and hear God saying, I don't know something? We've got to accept both as, as true. So it's just one more of those types of statements. Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself, right? We know that. If it did, then we couldn't count on anything God says. So I think it's, uh, it's passages like that, that very one, in fact, and the one in Genesis that I just mentioned, that cause open theists to claim that God is limited in his knowledge and he doesn't know everything. So what they're doing, kind of like Calvinists, is they're overplaying one side of things, the man perspective side and obliterating the self-revealed attributes of God when God says I the Lord do not change you know 
I know all things, you know, all these attributes that we're going to talk about in this midweek series. So we just have to accept them both as true. Um, the, 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 uh, the main thing to remember is that, you know, Christ is coming back and, you know, he wants the Jews to be ready and hopefully soon. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And um, you know, that's why we pray because, you know, we don't want to be fatalists, right? We, we understand that God has everything under control. That's a great statement of faith. But we still, within this bubble of time, do things based on the concept of determinism, right? We, we brush our teeth every day. We don't just say, well, if God wants me to lose all my teeth, I'm going to lose all my teeth. So why waste my time brushing my teeth? If God wants me to run out of gas... I'm going to run out of gas. Why am I going to stop and put gas in this car? God wants me to starve. I'll starve. You know, why should I bother eating? No, we don't function like that. That'd be absurd. We function within the realm of time, space, and matter with the understanding of determinism, causality. Um, but yet, according to the infinite, eternal, self-existent God, God's got all of this and it's all going to happen. You know, I'll close with this, you know, and I use this illustration when we were talking about Calvinism. What helps me to both rest in God's sovereignty and yet recognize my responsibility to make wise choices is to think of my life in terms of a bifurcation between the past and the present. So from this point forward, starting when we dismiss and I walk out that door, I have free choice to do anything I want, Right? I can stop at Starbucks. Well, they'll probably be closed. No, they won't be closed. But I can stop at Starbucks. I could, you know, rob a bank. I could, I could do anything. Right? I'm a free moral agent. But from this point back, everything that happened, God intended for it to happen. God didn't cause it to happen. That's where you Calvinists overplay one side or the other. Remember we talked about how Piper, and I forget, Sproul and some of the others were saying that God caused Adam to sin, God caused the devil to fall, that God invented evil, and all that. That's absurd. That's defining God based on the realm of time, space, and matter. But we, what we can say is that everything that has happened in the past, somehow, in ways often known only to God, are part of God's plan. But going forward, I, I can do whatever I want. Right? So I just... You know, how that comforts me is that it's specifically related to bad things that happen. You know, tragedies, heartaches. And if I look back and I go, I don't understand that, but somehow God's going to use that. He's going to bring good out of a bad thing. And also my own mistakes, you know. When I look back and I see my mistakes, you know, I own them and I confess them but they don't cripple me and I don't get crippled by guilt because I go you know I blew it and yet God's still God and since it happened it must be part of God's plan somehow but then that doesn't mean I turn around now going this way and say oh I'm going to do whatever I want and make the same mistake again that would be not learning a lesson so I mean there's really no easy way to comprehend as Romans said God's eternality but 
you know, the main application is just uh, to remember that God is not confined or limited in any way because if he was, he wouldn't be God. And that's what separates him from the little statues, from the made-up pagan deities, and from anything else people are making out to be their gods. All right, any last thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah. This is a little off topic, but I want to use your past 35, 40 years of ministry and ask you whether you have seen Christians longing for Christ's return as much as we seem to now, yeah. just simply because we're all like-minded and we've got 100 people here and we're hearing the same thing from each other. So the question is, in my estimation, has there ever been a time in, in my 35 years of ministry where I've seen God's people longing for his return as much as they are today? And I have to say no. I mean, it, this is a very unique, urgent time. I mean, I, I don't know how any other way to express that. That's why I, I feel a sense of urgency about you know, our local assembly. And I know there's people who would come if we had reached out to them or had, you know, I think, you know, the tendency is in, in, in a crisis is to fight or flight. And I think some people tend to look inward and say, let's circle the wagons, let's get all of our ducks in a row. And let's, but my, you know, the evangelist in me, which is my passion for all these years, is I want more people to know. I want people to hear because there are people out there. That's why I'm so excited about these books. You know, they're getting in the hands of unbelievers. I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I'm not exaggerating. I'm overwhelmed with emails from people who are picking up on one little thing here or there. They don't know the Lord. It's clear from their email, but they're, they're reading it. And people are just obsessed with what's going on in the world. And it's not just one holistic collective consciousness. I mean, for different reasons. You know, people are are definitely awakening to you know election rigging and you know the the vaccinations and the CBDCs and tyranny and global surveillance and all all these different things and so different things resonate with different people. But you know, time is short, and and God's people who used to never care about the end times, are suddenly wondering, could this be the day? And so I, I really, I, I, you know, someone asked me this the other day on that uh, interview I did with Life Clips, you know, and, and I, I definitely feel like the time is short. I just, I, you know, and I feel like I have some basis on which to speculate because I've been passionate about this my whole life. My grandfather and my father taught me eschatology and I've, it's been an interest of mine and so you know I've seen it where it was largely an academic study but not something that people actually were preparing for and making plans for it was more just trying to understand it and learn it but you just it was down the road now man it, people are living it and unfortunately that's given rise to a lot of false teaching so that's why we need to get a more accurate message out to people. I just see an open door, an opportunity to clearly teach both the gospel and God's uh, plan of the ages. And it bothers me when I see that void being filled by 
sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not so well-intentioned, but people that are just all over the map on their on their Bible. Justin, yeah. Uh, you had mentioned your past failures. Um, what, are you on a list or something? <laughs> I, I would like to thank you and the Lord for those failures because they led you here. Amen. Yeah, no Amen. doubt about it. Yeah, if you only knew. I mean, it's been a, quite a journey. It has been a journey. And, I'll uh, Okay, yeah. yeah. I need to make a few changes first. I'm going to, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got to do some FOIA redactions, you know, before I hand it over to you. But uh, anyway, well, thank you guys. Um, so now some housekeeping stuff. We will not meet next week. It's Thanksgiving week. I know we've got family coming in, kids flying in from two different colleges and uh, another relative coming in. So we're just going to not meet the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, and then we'll pick up again uh, the, let's see, the 30th. So that's two weeks from tonight. So I'll send out reminders. It'll be in the newsletter, and I'll send out a normal Wednesday reminder that says no Bible study tonight. That also means no live stream for those of you live streaming next week. Uh, but join us Sunday, another housekeeping uh, item. Our baptism service Sunday, we've got 10 people that are going to be baptized. I'm so excited, can't wait. Um, I visited the church that we're using their facilities, Grace Chapel, this afternoon, and it's just going to be sweet. And so I hope everyone at Plum Creek will make an effort to come out for that. It's a meaningful time to see a brother or sister make that public profession. And uh, so it won't take long. Um, it's going to be a special service. We've got some that are being baptized by relatives and uh, it's just going to be a wonderful special time. So 1 o'clock Sunday at Grace Chapel. Uh, it's in the bulletin. It's in the newsletter. So uh, just right up here in Castle Rock. Um, plan on coming out for that. All right. Yeah. No, not at all. Absolutely not. It's definitely not too late. In fact, if you know, I'm going to give the gospel that Sunday. I mean, I'm not going to preach at the baptism service, but I'm clearly going to give the gospel because the baptism itself is a picture of the gospel. And if someone gets saved that day, they can jump in with all their clothes, you know, and that's fine. Yeah. So absolutely. So um, if you could email me, though, because tomorrow I'm going to send out an email with some instructions just about you bring in a towel and a bathing suit under your clothes or something, stuff like that. So whoever it is that you were thinking, just email me and we'll add you to the list. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, we will see you uh, Sunday, if not before. Thanks God bless. Sure you